was that? Is there a glass? I heard something. I didn't do it. Oh, it's in here. It's all good. Okay, cross averted. There was no spillage. Well, not much. No, there wasn't any. Okay, on that note, let me pray. Uh, dear God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you we can come and worship you. We thank you that you're a God that is worthy of our praise. And I pray right now that my words will be your words uh, and that your Holy Spirit will move in this place tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes to mind... Sorry, interactive question, so be ready to answer. Um, what comes to mind when you think about someone who is a hero? Now, I'm not talking about like superheroes, like Superman and things like that, but... What comes to mind when you think of someone who is a hero? Like what char- character traits, things like that? What comes to mind? Sorry? Courage, cool. Bravery, Bravery yep. Selfless. Yes, selflessness. Strength. Strength. Lead by example. Lead by example, cool. Do you have a picture of someone in your mind? Now, maybe sometimes the movies sort of overemphasize the whole picture of this tall, dark, incredibly muscular person running into the waves to save the damsel in distress. Um, But when I was thinking about a hero, I was thinking of people like um, firefighters or police officers who go and oftentimes, you know, not thinking about their own safety, go and save or protect people. Yes? Are those sort of the images that you've got in your mind? Now, sometimes, though, I think that heroes don't always look like that. Thanks, Peter. You have only one choice. The ring must be destroyed. What are we waiting for? cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing, Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf.
take the ring to Mordor. Yes, I know it's a story, a good story, um, but Frodo has to fall into the unlikely hero category. Yes, a hobbit, a halfling, the size of a small child. He is not top of my list to enter into the realms of Mordor and take on the countless orcs that live there. He would fall into the category of being an unlikely hero. Sometimes... I daydream about being a hero. I too understand that I would fall into the unlikely hero category. But even though people like Frodo are unlikely heroes, these heroes still do heroic things. And as I shift my thinking from daydreaming into reality and then understand that, yes, there are unlikely heroes, but these unlikely heroes still do heroic things, I ask the question... Could I still do that? Even though these people are unlikely heroes, you know, they don't just get points for trying. It's like, good job, look, you were unlikely. We didn't expect to do it anyway. Look, you did your best. Well done. No, they still do heroic things. Could I do that? Last week you would have heard about the tragic incident, I suppose, of where some person decided to firebomb a bus and unfortunately the driver passed away. As tragic as that is, there are stories emerging now of an unlikely hero, some bloke who just happened to be there at the time and it, not worried about his own safety, was smashing open the back door of the bus so that the people in the bus who couldn't get out the front door because it was so on fire could get out. Now, the people that were on this bus said that this bloke was a hero because without him, they couldn't get out. An unlikely hero. And I hear that story, and I look at me, I go, could I do that? I'm not sure. As we read through the Bible, come to passages like Hebrews chapter 11, that's been you know, colloquially termed as the list of the heroes of the faith. And I read through the way in which God used these people to do amazing things, and I ask the question, could I do these things? Could I be like... Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, if that's how you pronounce their names, who were happy to go into the fiery furnace to follow God. Could I do that? Could I be like Paul, who was willing to go and share what he believed with other people, even though he knew that it could mean that he was going to put himself into great danger? Could I do that? I don't know. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be, uh, well tonight we begin a series then for the next couple of weeks that looks at unlikely heroes in the Bible. And tonight we're going to be looking at Gideon. Now we're not going to just be looking at Gideon just as in what he did that was heroic, we're going to be looking at the whole life of Gideon and the way in which God used the circumstances that Gideon found himself in to grow him to be the person that God wanted him to be. Now we find Gideon in Judges chapter 6, so please keep your Bibles open to where the passage was before. And when we pick up the story in Judges chapter 6, the Israelites are in all sorts of trouble. 
The Midianites, for several, several years, had been coming and plundering all of their crops year after year, bringing all of their hordes of people and all of their animals and things like that, and plundering all of uh, Israel's uh, crops, which didn't leave many for the Israelites. And because they were so scared of these Midianites, they're actually hiding, you know, in the hills. Judges chapter 6 verse 1 tells us why this was the case. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Unfortunately, this is a common occurrence in the book of Judges, where we read that the Israelites weren't following God. They were too busy chasing after the idols of all the people around them. And after a while, God would then go, I've had enough of this. You're not following me like I told you to. And he would send a group of people to oppress them. And then after a while, the Israelites would work out what was going on and they'd cry out to God, oh, sorry, God, we weren't following you. You know, please forgive us and please send a saviour who can come and, you know, save us from this oppression that we're in. And God would hear their cries. Uh, And he would raise up somebody, a judge or a saviour, within their people who would then save the nation from those that were oppressing them. And the Israelites would, you know, oh, you know, we love you, God, and everything would be going well. And they'd follow God for a little while. And then things were good, and they'd get comfortable, and they'd slip back then into worshipping all of the gods of the people around them. And then God would once again send some people to oppress them, and thus the cycle continues again, and again, and again. And all the way through Judges, we read of this cycle of um, judgment and then grace going on. This is the context that we find Gideon in. The Israelites are in trouble. And God then appears to Gideon in the form of an angel of the Lord and says in verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. Does that not sound cool? Would you not like God to come and say to you and call you a, well, insert maybe if you're a woman, but, you know, O mighty man of valour. Gideon must have been doing some awesomely courageous things for God to bestow this title upon him. Yes? O mighty man of valour. And we find out the very courageous thing that Gideon was doing in the previous verse. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Asbarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. What was Gideon doing? He was hiding. Is God having a go at him? So here's Gideon. Imagine it's sort of. I think the wine press is sort of like. Imagine like there's been a carved out part of a rock where they would like squash the grapes to make wine. So he's hiding in here, trying to get some wheat and hiding from the Midianites so they don't come and take it away from him. And God comes and calls him a mighty man of valor. Is he having a go at him? I tried to work out how that would sound if you said it. And the only way that I can come up with is one that sounds like it's dripping with sarcasm. Like, oh, Gideon, you mighty man of valour. Like, is that the picture you get in your mind? I can't think, but God must be having a go at Gideon here. Is he? Well, the answer is no. I think God can see the irony of what's going on here. 
But I think God is actually telling Gideon who he is to become. And God is naming him now for what he is going to become and do in the future. I do this with my kids. Now, calling them stinky pants is probably not the best example, but with Asher, um, who's our three-year-old son, uh, we call him Little Man. Now, if you've met him, he's not a man. Yes, he is little. He's the size of a small doll. Um, But we call him Little Man. And the reason why I think I call him Little Man is so that he will hopefully then, when he grows up, understand what it means to be a man and a godly man and rise to the occasion and become that. Because Asher and I are outnumbered in our house, uh, I wander up to him and say, Hey, Asher, hey, we've got to stick together because we're... And then he'll end the sentence and say, Mates. He doesn't know what a mate is. He's three. But if I instill in him now, Dude, we're mates and we've got to stick together because we're outnumbered, then over time, when he grows up, we'll be mates. So I'm starting the thought process in his in mind now so that when he grows up, he will grow to become what it is that we want him to grow to become. This is what God is doing here with Gideon. Because at the moment, he does not look like a man of valour. I had to look up the definition of valour, and it means to show great courage in danger and particularly in battle. He's not that at the moment. But later on, we'll see that that is what he will become. So God was claiming him now and saying, this is what you will become, a great man of valour. But God actually goes further than that. And in verse 14, he says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? So not only was God saying, you're a mighty man of valour, but also saying, you're going to be the person who, is, who I'm going to use to save Israel from the Midianites. How does Gideon take that? Not too nicely. He completely argues and disagrees with God. Verse 15, and said, and he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon completely disagreed with what God was calling him to do and looked at himself and said, No way, I am a nobody in a family of nobodies from a clan of nobodies. There is no way that I am able to do this. Who do you think this sounds like? This toing and froing between God, where God calls somebody to go and do something, uh, and they disagree and say so they can't do it. Does it not sound exactly like Moses? Exodus three, where Moses appear, um, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, "You're going to go and speak to Pharaoh, and you're going to bring my people out." And Moses is like, "No way! I am not doing that. I am not the right person for the job." Does this not also sometimes sound like us? Because I know it sure truly sounds like me. Uh, as I was preparing this, I couldn't help but be reminded of a couple of years ago when I was working with a family that I knew through school. Uh, and the mum was in palliative care and was very close to dying. I had a sneaking suspicion that I was going to be asked to do the funeral. And I think God was sort of giving me a little bit of the heads up with that and saying, here's going to be an opportunity where you can show my love to this family as they grieve the passing of their wife and mother. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing a funeral, God. You have got to be joking. You have got the wrong person. There has to be somebody else. But 
But despite the protests of Gideon, God tells Gideon two crucial things. Firstly, that we read in verse 14, that it's God the one that's doing the sending. And secondly, in verse 16, God God says to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So not only was God sending Gideon, but God was promising that he would be with Gideon regardless of what was going to happen going forward. Now, we cannot also lose the bigger picture of what is going on here, where we need to take a step back and see that God is deliberately using Gideon's circumstances to help grow his character. And God does exactly the same thing with us, where God uses our circumstances to grow our character. How does God do it in Gideon's life? We see that God deliberately uses his circumstances to help Gideon grow in his faith. And the first thing he gets Gideon to do is found in verse 25, where it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and put down, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. First thing that God got Gideon to do was to get rid of the idol worship that was going on in his life so that he could fully wholeheartedly put his faith in God. God calls us to do the same. Now, Gideon didn't have far to go to do this because the, uh, the altars were actually in his dad's backyard. I hope that you don't have any altars to other gods in your backyard. Uh, but we are still called to get rid of the things in our life that distract us from wholeheartedly following God. Now, I joke about having altars in your, in your backyard, but I think all of us have idols in our life uh, that may not be as out in the open as what these altars would have been back in Gideon's time. Could be things like you being more worried about what your friends are thinking rather than what God is thinking, and so that your decision-making is based around trying to make sure that your friends are happy and on side with you rather than worrying about you know, what God wants. Maybe the idols that you've set up in your life are that you're craving after a career or money. Maybe the distractions in your life are that you're too worried about what the next Marvel movie is that's coming out rather than reading your Bible. God wants us to get rid of these things in our lives so that we can wholeheartedly follow him. Now, sometimes this can be hard and sometimes there are consequences says just after that that yes, Gideon did get rid of the altars. He did it at night time. It doesn't sound like a man of valour, but to his credit, he still did it. And yes, there were consequences because the next day everyone woke up and saw what was going on and there was a big blue as to who was it and they wanted to find out and you know, take care of that person. So yes, sometimes these things are hard and yes, sometimes there are consequences, but God wants us to get rid of the things in our life that distract us from wholeheartedly following him. And Gideon removed these things from his life because God was using his circumstances to help grow his faith and trust in him. 
when you read the whole of Gideon's life in here, it's definitely a journey. The start from when we've read here that he was hiding and cowering away from the Midianites to when God calls him to go and says, I will be with you, when he gets rid of the things in his life so he can wholeheartedly follow God. Even after all of that, the journey continues uh, and we get to the famous part of where Gideon throws out a fleece to try and test to make sure that what God was asking him to do was actually what it was. So essentially what Gideon did was, is he just wanted to make sure that what God was asking him to do was really what he was asking him to do. So he said, look, I'm going to put like a fleece of wool out on the ground overnight. And in the morning, if the fleece is wet and the ground around it is dry, then I will know, God, that, you know, you're the one that told me to do this. Wakes up the next morning, there it is, fleece dripping wet, ground dry. Again, it's like, oh, okay, God, I'll look, I just want to really, really, really make sure. So how about tomorrow, I'll do this again, but this time the fleece is dry and the ground's all wet. Next morning, exactly as it is, and Gideon's like, okay, now I know that this is what God wants me to do. Can I throw in here a warning? Gideon is not showing us a foolproof way of how we can determine what God's will is for our lives. As most of you know, um, we're finishing up here at the church at the end of the year. We still don't know where we're going next year and what God has in plan for us, and we continue to pray. But I'm not out in my backyard each night with a blanket and sort of saying to God, oh, hey, I read this, you know, this job application you know, you know, online, so I'm going to chuck out this blanket tonight, Lord, and if it's wet in the morning and the ground's dry, then I'll know that I should apply for that job. That's not how it works. That sounds silly, doesn't it? So this is not a foolproof way of determining how, you know, how to, to work out what God will is for our life. I'll be care- very careful with how I say this. The, the Bible has a blueprint for how we should live. And God has given us this so that we can determine how he wants us to follow him. But the Bible does not have a blow-by-blow, step-by-step instruction manual for exactly everything that God wants you to do each and every day. There are principles, yes, but I can't open up the Bible here and look in Isaiah chapter 21 and read it and know, oh, this is exactly what God wants me to do tomorrow. Does that sort of make sense? God is more concerned about your character and about you wholeheartedly following him and through your circumstances, him using what's going on in your life to help you become more and more wholeheartedly following him each and every day. We see the result of Gideon's life. At the end, he is the person who is the leader and who saves Israel from the Midianites. And we see the journey that God took Gideon all the way through there when he pulled together an army to take on the countless Midianites. There were 32,000 of them and God said, that is too many. And after they told all of the the army, look, if you're too scared to fight, then go home, there were still 10,000 left and God said, that's too many. And then there was something else they did with drinking water. And in the end, there were 300 Israelite soldiers who took on the hordes of the Midianites and with God's help defeated them. Could Gideon have done that when we first meet Gideon 
here? No way. But did God take Gideon on a journey so that he could more and more trust in him and get him to the stage where he could trust God with the 300 to defeat the Midianites? Yes. We are also on a journey where God is using our circumstances each and every day to grow us in character, to wholeheartedly serve him. Where do you find yourself with regard to your circumstances today? Is God maybe asking you to do something big, yet you are fighting him because you don't think you are the right person? Maybe God's asking you to stop doing things or to start doing things to more wholeheartedly follow him. Maybe you are trying to seek God uh, about direction of what you should do for uni or for things like that. You know, and God's not quite giving the answer as quickly as what you'd like. Maybe tonight is the first time that you've actually thought about these things, where in the past you've just looked at your circumstances like this is just really bad and I don't know what to do here. And now for the first time you're seeing, oh, okay, I can see that God's actually trying to teach me something through here. What is God trying to teach you through what's going on in your life? How is he trying to grow your character through the circumstances that you currently find yourself in? The risk of sort of ruining the series, Gideon is not a hero. Gideon is someone who went on a journey with God and faithfully followed him and through Gideon, God did great things. Through the circumstances that he found himself in, God used them to take Gideon on a journey to grow his character. And God wants to do the same with us. Because God uses our circumstances to grow our character. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the life of Gideon as we read throughout the book of Judges. We thank you for the journey that you took him on, that you saw, even though he didn't see at the start, a mighty man of valour, a courageous person who would follow you and that you would use to save your people from the Midianites. We thank you for the way in which, through his circumstances, you shaped his character to wholeheartedly serve and follow you. Lord, I don't know all of the circumstances that people here tonight find themselves in, but Lord, I do know that you are wanting to teach us through the circumstances that we find ourselves in to better trust and wholeheartedly serve you. Help us, Lord, to see the circumstances that we're in and to see the way in which you are wanting to grow our character to become more and more like Jesus each and every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.